0: Hello, it's The Leap of Faith, and you're very welcome. tajdar e haram they're performed by Atif Aslam. As Muslims mark the holy month of Ramadan, which began last Tuesday, we'll hear about the experience in contemporary Ireland. Climate change campaigner Dr Lorna Gold suggests we need to build a culture of care as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. And later, I'll talk with Barbara Walsh, the chair of the Glencreas Centre for Peace and Reconciliation, who suggests that there's unfinished business in Northern Ireland when it comes to conflict resolution. But first, it's the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, and for many Muslims in Ireland and around the world, they've started a month of fasting that lasts from sunrise to sunset. What insights can we get from this practice at the centre of Muslim life? Well, Dr Amunala de Sande is head of the Department and Senior Lecturer in Contemporary Islam in University College Cork. and He joins me now from his home. Aman, welcome. As a child, you grew up very much in an ecumenical environment.
1: I did. I grew up in Glasgow. Um, and, uh, you know, gosh, how many stories could I tell you? My parents came from Pakistan in the 50s, the 60s, uh, ended up in Glasgow. My dad had a corner shop in a predominantly Jewish uh, part of the city in Shalins for. Uh, was it 21 22 or 23 years I don't know it's all a blur. my my father passed away in in 2010 but you know it was it was a real education from from the home if I could put it in that way you know my mom would be talking about how she bathed with buffaloes in the village in Pakistan and you know whereas my dad would have stories he'd 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 go to uh this newsagent uh, grocery store all suited and bootied because he always wanted to look good and he'd talk about how he sold a ton of Jewish chronicles or Jewish Telegraph newspaper. So I grew up with that. And, you know, as you know, Glasgow is also steeped in kind of sectarian divide mm-hmm. between Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers. So, like I said before, it, it, you know, I very quickly had to understand what made me unique. How do I, how do I bridge this Pakistani Islam of my parents with a very Glaswegian, you know, um, Presbyterian, you know, kind of Islam that I was growing yeah. So for me, it was something that I really reveled in. I really enjoyed that and it's made me who I am.
0: But um, even humour, of course, uh, helps tell that story in Glasgow.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I grew up with the question often, um, are you a, a Protestant Muslim or, or a Catholic Muslim? And it would often, you know, be uh, um, added to the question about Glasgow Celtic or Glasgow Rangers. My answer to that is always that we are now a tennis nation with Andy Murray. And in a past life, I was um, an umpire at Wimbledon. So um, I did that for two years whilst I was a PhD student. So I very quickly veer off these difficult, uh, contested uh, religious uh, mm-hmm. divides. But, but, you know, these are, these are the realities that we live in. It's how we deal with them.
0: But if you look at that process, I'm thinking back to maybe you growing up in Glasgow versus where you are in in Cork this evening, um, and the practice of Ramadan. How how much has that changed for you?
1: Oh, huge! I mean, you know, I was uh, thinking about uh, those those um, early morning times where you know the fam- Then our I- I'm the youngest of seven. We would all be woken up by our mother, if you're not getting up, you might have a bit of of, drabs of uh, water thrown on you. And it would be a time of teasing and laughing because everybody was half asleep to, you know, have these meals in the middle of the night before um, sunrise. And so you wouldn't be eating, you wouldn't be drinking. You're supposed to, you know, there's, there's all sorts of questions about what breaks your fast and, you know, backbiting, lying, can, you know, some people would say. So it's a real spiritual time. Um, for for Muslims to come together to, and it's a very communal time as well, you know.
0: Uh, I think if you were to examine the Christian practice of Lent, um, it started to fray a little bit at the edges for a lot of people. Uh, Has it happened as well for Muslims that their, their Ramadan has frayed a little at the edges in terms of observation?
1: No, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And so there are Muslims who will be fasting and there'll be some who won't be fasting. Some will be doing it more silently. Some will be doing it more, you know, uh, saying it more out loudly. Um, but again, it's, it's it, it varies. But, you know, you, you talk about Lent, you know, why do Muslims fast? I often get this. My students ask me this question. And in the Quran it says, you know, fasting is prescribed for you as it was prescribed for those before you. The, the, the legacy of fasting and the connection of fasting is actually, uh, you know, started with biblical monotheism, you know, so Islam is a continuation of that biblical monotheism. So just as Jews and Christians and, you know, yes, some Jews, some Christians, fasting is something that was always very important for the spiritual nourishment of these of individuals who believed in this uh, monotheistic god and so islam is is really muslims are no different in that way but it's a very it's a very long fast these days you know so
0: the, the, the phrase in ireland a grand stretch in the evenings probably doesn't bode too well if you're looking at at many hours ahead
1: I put out a tweet uh, the other day, just I'm I'm trying to get a lot of people ask me, what should we do? How should we deal with Muslims? And my answer to that is ask, you know, ask questions and and try to find out uh, what's happening. Um, But I said, you know, uh, come the time to break the fast, which is around about the 8.30 evening mark. I said, get out the way of Muslims, because that's where (laughs) we're cooking the food. We're getting ready to stuff our faces and uh, that but all of that like you said is 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 kind of you know challenged during the pandemic you know we it's normally a time for having you know parties together it's a celebration it's mm. a time to read more quran it's a time to have extra prayers it's time for extra t- all of these things happen in community
0: but in lockdown and this is the mm. second ramadan i think in lockdown it hasn't been that easy i mean for example you're you're not with your family or as, no
1: uh, i mean it's 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 very hard i mean that's that's an understatement mm you know, um, and a lot of this is done, you know, as through support networks, you're you're giving up food, (laughs) you're giving up food and drink for an entire day. Part of that rhythm is reaching out to your family, reaching out to your friends, looking forward to, you know, a, a dinner in the evening, all of that is 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 gone. But you but you know the, the, the act of fasting is a very solitary thing, right? So mm. so a Muslim who is fasting is fasting because they're trying to get closer to God, right? As a, but also to remember the poor. And so I, I always joke to my students about this. I said, you know, who would know if you went in the toilet and you had a banana? But the but the fact is that it's a spiritual, it's a religious act that that, that Muslims are doing in order to draw closer to God and to reevaluate you know those those great um, morals and and ethics mm. and virtues so so that's that's really important during the month of Ramadan
0: and does that strength help you then when you would come across a a racist or a, an ignorant phrase or statement or or suggestion from somebody
1: I'm human so i feel uh, you know i i uh, part of these last few years since i've been in Ireland have been very tough um I've been trying to work, uh, teach, do my research and, and speak publicly on trying to build bridges and, and asking critical questions. I believe questions are important, but I've received backlash on that. Um, but I feel strong because um, I, you know, there are more people who, who are on the side of building bridges than, than those who want to burn them. That gives mm-hmm. me a lot of hope. And for me, it comes from, my faith it comes from my my parents understanding of what it meant to be pakistani you know that's that just that just makes me feel quite good
0: are you calling on a, a sense of forgiveness or what is is helping you there do you forgive the people who who have an evil thought towards you
1: um i do I I, 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 I I worry more about others who don't have platforms and the privilege that I have. I'm protected by a university community. Um, you know, I get I get lovely emails from you know, very senior people at the university and around Ireland, around the world who tell me, you know, you're doing a good job. I worry about your average person in the street who doesn't have that. I worry about refugees. I worry about new immigrants. I worry about people who, are, who don't have the fluency of language, who don't have the privilege of sitting here having this conversation with you. And just actually, when I open my mouth, I think it breaks down stereotypes, right? And that's I find that a shame, you know. Like when you, if you spoke to my mum, my mum is 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 not literate, you know. She she looks at the the what's ha- what's on the front of an envelope that drops in her house, at our you know flat in Glasgow, to try to understand what it says, and she needs my siblings to explain it. You know, my mum can't react when she has received racist, um, you know, uh, kind of stuff in Glasgow. So I worry about that. And for me, it's about joining the dots. It's about you know calling out stuff that 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 draws us closer to each other which means calling out misogyny calling out homophobia calling out islamophobia all of these things are connected
0: what's the biggest comfort you get from your faith
1: hope i think it's hope uh, for me especially during the pandemic um and to think that um you know, um, when things are really bad, you know, uh, times where I used to uh, get called on the phone, a a, a terrorist attack had happened, um, and I used to get calls from journalists who'd be like, you know, but you, 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 how do you feel about your faith being violent, right? So I would often, what was it? I had to draw something out from myself, because it's very hard, you know, where we're all Muslims are being labeled in this way. So I was always trying to find hope, And I was always trying to find love, because for me, Islam is love, uh, you know, just as it is um, within Judaism, Christianity and all religions. So it's about going back to these values, going back to to reconfiguring ourselves so that we don't get swallowed up in in hate and, and division, but not to the detriment of asking ourselves and others critical questions. I find, you know, part of my challenge, I think I say to my students is I want you to be critical thinkers. I want you to think. I want you to be able to ask difficult questions. Why is it like that? Why do Muslims fast? What does fasting actually do to an individual when you don't have any food or drink in your belly? What would that do to your spiritual? Would that make you a good person? Why do you give charity? I ask my students these questions all the time. And I'm like, why would you want to give charity? why have these religions regulated charity in this way? You know, is it, why would they do, why don't we kill each other? And my students look at me and they're like, what are you talking about? I go, yeah, why, why don't we kill each other? I think, and, and if you don't go down to the foundational reasons why we do these things, you know, I think, you know, you layer upon uh, upon these, you know, something that's kind of superficial. I think it's time to go back to, To to these fundamental, we need to become fundamentalists at some level, fundamentalists in the very positive way, if you know what I mean. Because if you look at you know uh, you know the way that we've, uh, some of our terms have been lost. Jihad is such a beautiful word to me. It's a word about struggle. It's a word about struggling with difference. It's a word of struggling to to uphold god's love and mercy and to revel in the dark and the night we've lost that jihad has been stolen it's been taken by these terrorist idiots numpties as i call them who have taken my religion and torn it apart but i'm not i'm also not saying that they're not muslim because that's part of the struggle too easy it's too easy to dismiss people and say they're not part of my faith the struggle is to say what do we do to counter these numpties. That is what, for me, is faith.
0: Anil Adesandi, happy Ramadan.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Next month marks Northern Ireland's centenary. It came about in May 1921 as a result of the 1920 Government of Ireland Act that established devolved administrations in Belfast and Dublin. As that anniversary approaches, there's been a return of violence that comes with a backdrop of the 23rd anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, joining me from her home this evening is Barbara Walsh, chair of the Glencree Centre for Peace and Reconciliation in County Wicklow. This organisation has been hugely involved in the peace process in Northern Ireland and elsewhere. Barbara, you're very welcome. The changing situation in Northern Ireland is often misunderstood by the casual observer. Understanding the complexity of the process is undoubtedly one of Glencrees' strengths. What have you learnt by your involvement?
2: Glen comes from the perspective, you know, we say when we say, how can we help here? You know, what can we do? And um, some of the work that we're doing at the moment, we're in the back channels uh, with people. You won't find it on social media and you won't find it in the papers or you won't find it anywhere because that's not where change happens. And that's not where engagement happens, you know, and we have a program at the moment with young uh, secondary school students who are uh, from four schools here in the Republic and in the North engaging directly with uh, political leaders. So just recently we had, they met Leo Varadkar, they met Colin Eastwood and they met Mike Nesbitt. And you know, their questions were around the environment. They were around unity they were around what 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 does this mean you know what does it mean for me as a young person these are the things i want so it was really interesting to hear those conversations
0: if we look at the the conflict maybe as it was unfolding 20 years ago 25 years ago um and against now do the religious leaders have the same role do they have the same influence as they may have had heretofore
2: uh, it's it's a good question i think that religious leaders even 20 years ago they had a very core role many of them in actually keeping the peace i think many other religious leaders did not i think they minded their congregation and they were on the side of whatever whatever tradition they were in but they were like substantial leaders like when you mention alex reed and you know those in clonard monastery that at that time and Ken Ewell and you know the, the Catholics within all of that so I think that when the political process started I think the church leaders stood back from that then and a bit like the peace agreement people said well you know it's over now and there's politicians and you know but I wouldn't like to say that there are many that that still do that I, I'm, I'm still thinking of Gary Donegan who's in north belfast the sisters and the nuns that have have really stood with people who were really hurt and lost at that time and a lot of the time they don't get the credit they do not get the credit you know so there are individuals that are that are really stand stand with that and i suppose You'd also have to look then at maybe the declining power of the institutions of the church, and that has another impact. Even though I think the church in Northern Ireland is quite different in, in, in to the church here, you know, the, the the context was different for a long period of time. So I think it's different. My experience of it is different.
0: There has been a lot of surprise expressed of the age of some of the people who have been involved, for example, in the in the on the yeah. street protests and the violence. Um, yeah. How does that sit with you?
2: Well, you know, rioting has gone on at the interfaces for years, you know, and those little children, a lot of them that are rioting probably would have seen that in a lot of cases, it would have been a rite of passage for a lot of those. And also, they're also being used. They're also being used by others for a range of different reasons, you know, and I know that there's widespread concern for those youngsters who, if they get a record, it won't affect them now, but it'll affect them in the coming years. And so there's a great, you know, there's a a good understanding of that. And a lot of those youngsters that are out know are coming from some of the most marginalized and deprived areas even though sometimes i hate using that word but you know so but also i think it was heartening to see you know community workers out there and local community activists that have stood and uh, against that kind of violence and trying to talk the kids down out of all of that you know so
0: I got the impression, Barbara, at the beginning of our conversation that you would believe that there's unfinished business in Northern Ireland. What is that unfinished business?
2: Oh, well, the unfinished business is really dealing with the legacy of the conflict. You know, there has been... Sometimes I think, you know, if, if the leaders of the main political parties could say something to each other like, we have caused each other a lot of pain in this part of the country you know, and we are sorry and let's create a future that doesn't collapse into the past every few years. And so my hope is that one day that that will happen, that people will say in the interest of their their young that they, that they can say, we are sorry for all the harm and hurt we have caused each other over the years. We want to create a better future for all of our children.
0: Barbara Walsh, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight.
2: Thanks very much, Michael. It was lovely to talk to you.
0: Finally this evening, a webinar was held this week, organised by Focalare Ireland in cooperation with Trocora and the Margaret Aylward Centre, and featured climate change campaigner Dr Lorna Gold. Lorna is Director of Movement Building at Faith Invest and Vice Chair of the Global Catholic Climate Movement, the movement set up to implement Pope Francis's teaching on the environment globally. Well, Lorna joins us from her home this evening. A lot of people have been feeling intensely nostalgic during the COVID pandemic, longing to go back to, well, normal, or some feel it's irritating to say that new normal. What's your thinking on that?
3: Yeah, well, tell me about it. I think all of us at this point have this hankering. The other night I described it as a hankering to go back to normal. Just the normal of being able to go to out to the pub, being able to have a coffee with a friend. But we have to also recognize, uh, and that that's all great. I'm, I'm not kind of getting at that sense of normality that we need to return to the sense of social interaction, but there was such a sense before the pandemic that all was not right. I think that's what I'm trying to get at, that if you just cast your mind back to the start of last year, which seems like forever ago, um, we, were, we were in the midst of the worst forest fires in living memory in Australia. The climate strikers had had that whole year, Greta Thunberg and myself included was outside the Doyle every Friday uh, morning. And there's a real consciousness that climate change and ecological destruction was catching up with us and we needed to change. So I think what I was trying to get at and what, what really strikes me is that this hankering to go back to normality has to be a different normal having to almost consciously make a choice on which kind of normal we want in the future because i think there's no nothing can be taken for granted at this stage uh, i think we can't move back or we we could obviously and that that's a choice as well to the way things were to to the old normal that also represents um In a sense, ecological destruction, ecological degradation, or we can use what we've learned or what we are learning from the pandemic to carve something new, to to kind of open our imaginations, to see something new. And I, in the midst of everything, in the midst of all the pain and the suffering that is real, I can almost see that there is a different future that this pandemic has cast light on our interconnectedness, our interdependence. And the topic of the webinar I was was, um, on was about a culture of care. And to me, that has risen so high on the agenda now. Care. Care is what binds us together. So why can't we reimagine society on the foundation of, of that principle of care?
0: But you also introduce the idea of divided hearts. Uh, what, what happens that is in that suggestion? What that we can only care for so much at a time?
3: Yeah, this isn't my idea. It's, it's Pope Francis' idea, and it's 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 a phrase that really jumped out at me when I read Laudato Si. And um, he says that our hearts are are small enough. Like you know, in classic Pope Francis set, um, style. He uses these lovely kind of anecdotes. He says we've only got one heart. Um, so there's not space within that heart to divide it up. You can't be caring for one thing and uncaring towards the other. Uh, we need to expand our hearts to to have, let's say, a culture of care, which enables us to to have the same level of or not level of care, attitude of care towards people, towards the planet, um, and. T- to recognize that all of those are are interrelated. And um, I was really, really struck when, when he said that, because he Pope Francis keeps coming back to this idea of the common root of the crisis we're facing. Uh, because in society today, we like to think, even now that, that, okay, well, there's the environmental crisis, and it's a way we'll put that over there. And in a sense, with the pandemic, we've put it on the back burner. And then we need to focus now on caring for people and caring for the sick and caring uh, for those who are vulnerable. And yet, if you look at it at a very deep level, under the surface, as Pope Francis does, as other uh, writers and thinkers have been doing, there's a common thread, a common root, which connects both of these different crises. And uh, in a nutshell, that common root is... A society that, that in a sense has come to believe that what, what kind of connectors or what, what dominates is individualism, is self-interest, is a kind of siloed way of thinking that is quite, everything's quite detached from each other. And, and we can't move forward unless we start to overcome that. And that, that, that's where I see the pandemic as a, a threshold moment to help us to, to move forward and because we're seeing those interconnections right before our eyes.
0: Do you have any concerns as people attempt to put things back uh, on, on track again, uh, that you know the, the focus that was on injustice, that was on poverty, that was on climate, will get swept away by a desire to, to put the economy back on track?
3: I think that is, that is the, the biggest challenge we face. And that's why this kind of discussion and debate that that we're trying to open through this um, Dare to Care campaign. We need to put uh, new ideas out there in the public sphere because the old economy, or let's say the standard way of thinking about economics, economic growth, like just kind of let's get moving again. That's the root, the primary root of the problems that we're we're facing today. We need to return to... uh, um, a healthy economy, an economy that sustains a healthy planet. And we need an economy that's based on principles of care, principles that we have limits, the, the reality we have limits. There's It needs to be a circular economy, an economy that regenerates. And it, so there's so many, an economy that is based on nature, nature-based solutions. These are all ideas that are out there. And the wonderful thing for me is that, All of these amazing economic ideas are, in a sense, emerging and flourishing within the pandemic. So I'm quite, I mean, there's choices to be made and there's huge resistance, let's say the fossil fuel industry, hugely resistant to any kind of change, even now. But the reality is that these new ideas are gaining traction. They're gaining traction at a really fast pace and often when when society historically emerged from a crisis it's whatever idea is available that really rises to the top so I think that that there's a huge opportunity here to reframe we're talking about uh, even now Ireland's just obviously we have the new climate bill and the big question now I mean it's fantastic that this um and it's not perfect, but this climate bill takes us huge steps ahead in terms of having a legal obligation to reduce our emissions. But the big question now is how do we achieve it? How do we actually achieve this? The, the law tells us nothing about that. And we cannot achieve that goal unless we shift our mindset towards this new kind of economic thinking.
0: Dr. Lorna Gold, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith tonight.
3: Thank you, Michael.
0: And that's our Leap of Faith. Our producer is Sheila Callan, Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.